shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast, and they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast, and your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at films in a franchise one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt bradley Shergi, and with me is William Thrasher. Hello, listeners. Heavy drinking, moderate drinking, and non-drinking. That's right. We're not talking about the uh, the drinking habits of the Rice Krispies mascot, Snap, Cracker, and Pop. We are talking <laughs> about the uh, Hanover trilogy. We're starting our look at the series, and uh, this time around we're going to look at the original Hanover film. Hardly ah, yes, Hangover. The Bengali this... satirical comedy directed by Parbat Roy, starring Prozenjeet Karanji as Samaresh and Sayantika Banerjee as Mealy. Oh no, this is really concerning, Thrasher. You, I'm afraid you've watched the wrong film. I, of course, meant The Hanover, uh, directed by Todd Phillips, which came out in 2009. I can see how that would cause some confusion. Right, because The Hanover, it is a, a generic title, and um, it's something, if anyone, if, you know, if you're listening and you haven't done drinking, good for you, but if you, uh, Thrasher and I both um, enjoy we partaking, yeah, we, we imbibe in, in adult beverages, and um, it is really, you know, if you've been drinking at all at some point, you would have experienced a Hanover, and what these guys have, it could have just been called The Roofie, as it turns out, but um, yeah. As the tagline says, some guys just can't handle Las Vegas. The Hanover originally came out in 2009, directed by Todd Phillips, produced by Daniel Goldberg, Todd Phillips, written by John Lucas and Scott Moore, starring Bradley Cooper, Ed Helms, Zach Galifianakis, Heather Graham, Mike Epps, Justin Bartha, Jeffrey Tambor, and Ken Jeong. This uh, is music by Christopher Beck, cinematography by Lawrence Scher, editing by Deborah Neil Fisher, and uh, distributed by Warner Brothers Pictures. And um, off uh, off a of box office mojo data, the budget was thirty five million. It made four hundred sixty seven point five million. Hugely, uh, this was a low budget comedy. Yeah, in Hollywood, they consider thirty five million low budget. Believe it or not, and um, it made you know over ten times its money back if you don't count marketing cost in there. And they did market the hell out of this movie. It's worth mentioning the Hanover. The trailer got such a positive reaction uh, on YouTube and all this stuff that Warner Brothers greenlit a sequel just on the positive response to the trailer alone. Yeah, it's and it's very rare that comedies get sequels to begin with. So the fact that this ended up becoming the foundation for a trilogy is completely out of left field. Even more so, the uh, in the whole trilogy, you know, is directed by Todd Phillips. It it stars the same people to have that consistency in a comedy, in any series, a comedy series, nonetheless. And I I do want to uh, before we talk about briefly about the plot of the film and then sort of get more into it. Um, looking at Todd Phillips, I mean, he is a I would consider him like a modern John Landis as far as like having like really solid output of comedies. Would you say mm. that's fair? Yeah, I can go with that parallel. Because he did, um, you know, Road Trip, Old School. Um, he actually, why does it say, oh, I see. He was a he was one of the writers at Borat. I was going to say he didn't direct that. Um, you know, Due Date, um, 
you know, the latest one he did, it, it looked pretty good. I haven't seen it. it. was War Dogs with um, Jonah Hill and Miles Teller. Yeah, I have not seen that one yet. But he, he's done a lot of very popular uh, comedy movies. And uh, I'll, I'll just start off the bat, not to spoil the cheese, so to say, but um, that's not an expression. I don't know why I said so to say. The Hanover is a modern comedy classic. You know, I can I can see that it, it is like I do still hear people talk about this movie today when they when they look back on good recent comedies. Haven't heard anyone mention the sequels, but we'll get into that when those come around. Exactly, and uh, they did come out with these movies in quick succession. So the Hanover. When did you first see it, Thrasher? Uh, I first saw it. I be- if I remember correctly, I first saw it. Uh, opening weekend or the weekend after I was a, a huge fan of uh, Ed Helms and Zach Galifianakis so that I could see a movie that they were both in just really thrilled me I then saw it about a week again about a week or two later uh, so I've mentioned this before but my family does a does kind of a, a reunion get together thing in the Outer Banks uh, every summer in July and the film was still in theaters and for whatever reason, and I don't know why, all the women in my family wanted to see, go and see the movie, so I went with them because I wanted to see it again. Hmm. And did your your family enjoy it? Did you laugh more the second time? I I probably laughed about the same amount, but everybody had a good time. Hmm. It's uh, right. You know, I, I'm looking at this uh, the cast of this movie, and really, at this launched the careers of the three stars not that they were not well known in particular you know i was just talking to uh, my wife uh, about this yesterday but i said you know who do you think was the most well known when this came out and she said ed helms and i think she's right yeah because he he i believe he had he'd been on the daily show for ages and he had started appearing on the office by this point on the American office series. Oh right. yeah. On the American yep. office series. Yep. Although wouldn't that be weird to digitally insert him into the British office? I remember the American office series did a forced uh, cameo with, um, oh, with David Brent. Yeah. As David Brent. So yeah, the Hanover, I saw it. Um, it's actually the only one of these three movies I got to see in a theater. The rest I caught on video and, it's one of those things where um, it was just the perfect, sometimes the environment in which you see a movie makes it so much better than it is. And in this case, I think this is a good movie. But earlier that day, we went, it was my first time going to um, the the beer, one of the many beer festivals in Portland they do, but it's, it's the big one on the waterfront. Hmm. It's in the summer. It goes for three days. If you go in the last day, it's not as crowded, but most of the taps are run out. And it, it, it's become so popular that... If there's a, a beer flavor, especially if it's strange, people in Portland like weird things, you know, like a cucumber-flavored beer or something, you might wait over 30 minutes in line for a taster. So, that being said, we got, you know, uh, plastered, I guess, at, at the beer festival, went out to lunch with a friend, and then went to the theater where it was nice and cool to see The Hanover. And it was uh, just a real fun fun way to see the movie. It wasn't you know, planned. I... I wasn't alive back then, but I am nostalgic for an era when an air-conditioned theater was a main selling point for going to see a movie. Yeah, you know, I don't... um, Other than that time I just mentioned, the last time I remember an air-conditioned... We went to a theater just because of the air-conditioning. It was in the the dog days of summer in Washington, D.C. with my um, stepbrothers and stepsister and, and myself, and 
the movie my dad picks us to see is the Jodie Foster science fiction drama. Um, oh, gee, it's based on the Arthur C. Clarke. Oh no, Contact. Contact. By yeah. The Carl, based on the Carl Sagan novel. Oh, sorry, not yeah, Sagan, not Arthur C. Clarke. I, I get those guys confused sometimes. Um, masters of the science fiction genre. And, you know, we went to see the movie, and, like, if you're, you're going to see a movie just to get in the air conditioning, a slow-paced drama doesn't really cut it for the summer. <laughs> you want something with, like, explosions or, or sort of a naughty comedy, like The Hanover. And uh, that was just... I, I cannot... I have not seen that movie since, and I don't... Um, I had not fond memories of it, and it had nothing to do, I think, with the movie itself. <laughs> it's just the, the circumstances. It, it, the movie felt like five hours. Uh, Hanover... So, you know, briefly, this film is about four buddies. Well, and three buddies and, and one uh, hanger on that's kind of yeah, forced one, upon them. One, yeah, one third, he's a, I would say third wheel, but he's really a fourth wheel. And um, they go to, to Vegas to sort of celebrate with the, the groom of an upcoming wedding. And uh, in Vegas, you know, a, a guy's bacchanalia... Um, you know they're gonna tie one on on several tie several ones on in the town and just a good old happened, fashioned stag night. Stag night, exactly. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, as the saying goes. And um, sort of chaos happens. They lose the uh, the groom of the the wedding, so they have to find him and they have to be back in time for the wedding. And you know, in the briefest way possible, that's the high uh, summary of the the Hanover. Um, and before, but I think let's let's talk about the film in more detail. But uh, before we do, why don't we talk about the cast? Because we mentioned, you know, this made a lot of the cast well-known. And I want to sort of get uh, your thoughts and mine, Thrasher, about how you think of their performances. Because comedies are, um, to have a comedy hold up over time, yeah, I think is pretty unusual. And you, you have people playing certain comedic archetypes in this picture. Well, I guess that's the thing, because, you know, Bradley Cooper and Justin Bertha, even with as little time as, as Justin Bertha has in the film, they they do a great job, but they are so overshadowed by Helms and Galifianakis that it's it's easy to forget that they even have a performance in this film. Bradley Cooper is kind of like the too cool for school kind of slick guy. He's not a, a dick in the way Chevy Chase comes off in a lot of his performances, but it's that same sort of... I don't want to say Bill Murray because it's not like that either. He's a real likable screen presence, and he's the guy that says like, "It's cool, it's cool, don't worry, man." Well, he's almost the straight man because out of everyone in That's the right. movie, he's yeah. the most competent and level-headed. But he still gets roped up into the shenanigans. Right, and it's one of those things where, um, actually, Bradley Cooper. He's not that far from our age, Thrasher. He's a uh, forty-two, and I feel old saying that, but you know he's. <laughs> within the the wheelhouse i suppose you could say and well, hey um, i just turned 37 years young so i'm having a good time right i just turned 35 not that long ago so yeah um but he had you know been sort of struggling in in different movies and had done some tv show stuff early in his career i mean really early in his career he was in wet hot american summer and but um since then he's done sort of dramatic movies like uh limitless with uh, robert de niro and um he was in a clive uh barker or I, I should say a horror film based off a of clive barker uh story the midnight meat train 
Oh, yes, and I remember you telling me about you saw the trailer for that, and everybody mm-hmm. was like terrified until the name of the movie came up, and then the, the people started giggling. After. Which I don't know if you've seen that film, but I think it's actually it's a decent adaptation of the story, all things considered. Um, I don't know if it's scary; it's just more weird than anything else. Well, that's that's the kind of title that's a great title for a short story or a novel, but <laughs> yeah. it doesn't translate to film. Even for a comic book, it would be a good, you know, story. But, um, and you know, since then, Bradley Cooper has been doing a lot of dramatic stuff like Silver Lining Playbook, did a lot of stuff with David O. Russell. But Hanover really put him big and up in front on the map. Wasn't he on the show Alias? Wasn't that one of his? You know, I didn't watch that series. I'm not entirely sure. Okay, I, w- I could have been lying there. Nope, he was on Alias, um, which ran for five seasons, so that was one of his first mm. big things. But The Hanover was his big feature film thing. But you're right, he he plays it pretty straight, and he's he's not it's not a show off a part, which is why people don't remember him as much. You, I want to do, talk about Justin Bartha. You brought him up. He is the missing uh, groom, and um, I don't think I've seen him in anything else, and he's just, like, bland. Like, he is, like, no presence, and I, I have the feeling that well, I think... He got kind of screwed over, really. It, it, it's no fault of, fault of his own. It's just the role in the script. He's a device. He's not a character. Yeah, I mean, he, he's missing for most of the movie. So as, as a result, you you don't get to see him engage in any hijinks. So he doesn't leave an impression on you like the rest of the characters. He's They probably, since he's going to go missing, they probably should have front-loaded a few things for him to do in the, in the first act of the film. Hmm. You know, some because you know, because I, I guess because that's I, now that now that I have to have a chance to think about it, I I care more about the character because of his friendship with the other characters who go looking for them rather than anything he actually does. Do you think they could have set him up more? Or I mean, oh, it's absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Because at the beginning, it you really I, I find the the character that kind of is gets everyone's attention because it's a genius comedic performance is Zach Galifianakis as Alan. <laughs> oh, yeah. And my, uh, my wife was very familiar with Galifianakis. Um, I think she caught like an early stand-up gag of we hear do these very obtuse kind of mumblings as he played on the piano. He's actually a pretty good pianist. Um, and like his humor is real out there, weird avant-garde stuff. And, to see him in a mainstream movie like struck me as really weird, but he um, he takes the role of Alan and runs with it. I don't know if they say that Alan is autistic, but I certainly got that vibe from the the way he performed that character. Well, he's sort of he's he's a, a real sort of schlemiel type character. Anything that can be wrong with a person is wrong with Alan, and and it and it gets really really dark, such as that one throwaway line where he mentions how he's not allowed within five hundred feet of a public school. Yes, and just uh, he'll just say these things that hint at a much darker past, but and, and you don't need to go into the details. It, you know, had they done flashbacks to explain all his stories, I don't think that would have made it that funny. Um. I, I neglected to mention uh, Alan's father is played in a almost a cameo, really, by Jeffrey Tambor. And, and yet, Jeffrey Tambor makes anything 10% better just by his premise. I really cherish the time he has on screen. And the way... Can you remind me how Alan we mentioned is sort of, at the beginning, we hinted at, he's the, the fourth wheel, no one really wants him to be there. 
But he is he the the brother of the bride? Yes, he's the he's the brother of the bride. He's he's uh he's gonna be uh du- he's gonna be Doug's uh, brother-in-law once the wedding is done, and so he's just sort of the parents kind of invite him to the stack night on his behalf. I in fact felt a lot like um, Alan at my sister's wedding because I was made sort of a groomsman at the wedding just I guess because they felt like I they had to throw me a bone but I was sort of jammed up there with my um my my brother-in-law my wife's husband and all his college buddies but they didn't include me in their um uh reveries right hmm. so I felt really sort of jammed up there for no reason I, I felt for Alan you know you feel sympathetic for him even though he's a dark character I, I love the running gag that he complains when people curse because this movie has a lot of cursing. It's a hard R. Um, but if you notice, like, they did a very good job, and a lot of it's ADR dialogue, but of him saying, he'll say shoot when people are saying shit or fuck. Like, oh, he, that's, he has his principles. That's true. I forgot about that affectation that he had. Um, also, we have, um, in the other main character, Ed Helms, who, as we mentioned, you know, sort of got a start in The Daily Show. He... It, it, he almost is like a Woody Allen nebbish kind of part, I think. Well, he he's the sad sack. Uh, he's he's yes. the the yep. character in the friendship that that the the bad things always happen to, and that's that's one thing you know. Looking back on this film with, with fresh eyes, one of one of his things is that he is uh, he's he's uh, he's uh, dating a woman named Melissa, who's played by Rachel Harris. And part of the established background is that Melissa cheated on him, and he he forgave her. But I, th- I think part of the problem is they make they make Melissa too unlikable too early on. Yeah, because we're, we're meant to sympathize with him, and we're meant it's meant to be a moment of triumph when he when he breaks up with Melissa. But they make Melissa seem so horrible in the first act that you that it makes it makes. Ed Hel- it makes uh, Stu look unsympathetically pathetic, and the only thing that could happen is if they broke up. They they should have made their relationship seem healthy by having him forgive her for the indiscretion. But then throughout the adventure in Vegas, he should have discovered worse things about her, or maybe even run into her uh, and and realized that the cheating was going to be a reoccurring problem, and then give him his moment of triumph. I, I will agree that uh, the character of Melissa, played by Rachel Harris, is a is a one note mega bitch character. But she does, I think, she does a great job in the performance. I mean, she really sticks to um, her her guns, as, as flawed as they might be. Well, within, within and, the context of the, this kind of comedy, she's she plays the best possible version of that character. Sure. But the character, it's the it could have been a better character. One character I would have liked to seen more from is Black Doug, played by Mike Epps. Mike Epps oh, yeah. is is a very funny uh, comedian. I quite liked him in the uh, some of the Resident Evil movies. He's sort of the comic relief in those, but he's done so many things, such as the Friday movies, and uh, he just pops up everywhere. But he's a real solid uh, presence, real solid performance. And even though he doesn't get much to do in the movie, I think he he makes the most of his dialogue. Um, so we we got a few more actors to talk about and then we'll dive into the film um what's your quick take on ken john i mean this this also made his career really he was a practicing doctor 
in New Orleans, I believe, who did amateur stand-up comedy, won a local contest that a Hollywood producer happened to be at and convinced him to move his family to L.A. And um, he he started out, I think, having a, a role in um, OG. What was it? I mean, like Community he did after this film, but also he was uh, had a bit part in um, Knocked Up as the doctor. Yeah, he's he's done he's he's done a lot of things, and I think I think for most people this was their introduction. Oh, actually, Community had already started by this point. Community started had it. in wow. okay. two thousand nine. So, so yeah, yeah actually, because so this isn't exactly. I guess if this had come out earlier, it probably would have been uh, Ken Jeong's breakout role. He he does a he does a great job. Although he he, he plays. He plays a character that you you don't often see. Where like the, 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 his whole character is kind of like funny foreign man, which which you don't right. often see sometimes because of because of matters of taste. And and yet he leans into that part. He he does. Um, and you know I, I would like to mention recently he he create, co created and starred in a, a sitcom Doctor Ken that ran for two seasons, just got canceled recently, but I wouldn't mind watching it. I think he's a very funny guy. Um, he mentioned he, he based his voice for, what is it? Mr. Chain. Is that what it's called? Uh, but yeah, I um, believe that's, that's his name. Oh, Leslie Chow. Oh, Chow. No, Leslie Chow. Chain. My mistake. Mr. Chow. Um, he based it on his, uh, Ken John. He's, uh, I believe Korean and his wife is Vietnamese and he based it off his mother-in-law, his Vietnamese mother-in-law's accent. <laughs> But that he does does the flourishes, makes him flamboyant. It's not like I mean, you, you think of um, this isn't talked about. I think as much as it should be talked about. But it, it, Asians are really stereotyped in um, mainstream Hollywood films, even today. They're either like a martial arts expert, or I mean, you, you don't get the stereotype anymore of them always having cameras taking photos of people. I mean, that was big in the seventies and eighties. Yeah, that that died out in the nineties, thankfully. Right. But, I mean, usually, like, they're a martial art expert or their English isn't good. And even though you have, as you said, the crazy foreign man, um, that he's that he's a gangster, which, yes, you do have a lot, uh, especially in Asia, you have a lot of Asian gangster films, whether it's the Chinese Trihead or the Yakuza in Japan. Um, it is, yeah, he, he does enough of an original spin on it, and he commits to the character. It's not like Ken Jeong is playing Fu Manchu, although I think, come to think of it, he might not make a bad Fu Manchu if they do one of those pictures again. I'd, I'd still um, rather see Nicolas Cage uh, as Fu Manchu. Fair enough. But but it's it's so strange that in a movie with Zach Galifianakis, there's a more over-the-top character than Zach Galifianakis as Alan. Right. Uh, and the idea of um, Mr. Chow coming out of the trunk naked was not in the script. That's something he came up with on set. And well, it it adds so much to the character because it's a, a true what the hell moment. Yeah, the the whole well the whole movie it I, I don't know how improvisational it was but the whole movie feels very natural and loose in a very good mm-hmm. way. I mean, right. So so many moments feels like something they either came up with on the day or came up with on the spot once the care once the cameras were rolling. Yeah, and I I think this statistic is interesting. This is. Uh... At the time of its release, the original Hanover film was the second highest grossing R-rated comedy in the United States, beating out uh, the very first film we covered on the original sequel cast series, Beverly Hills Cop. Oh, wow, which also had a trilogy. 
But uh, yeah, come to think of it, that's right. So, um, Hanover, Hanover, Hanover. Let's let's talk about the story here as it was. Um, this being a modern movie, for them to get to Las Vegas, it takes uh, a little bit under 15 minutes. They don't waste... If this would have been an 80s movie, they would have spent at least 30 minutes before going to Las Vegas. Yeah, they, they waste no time. Do you think they get there too quickly? No, I don't think they. I don't think they get there too quickly. I like that. I like that we do get to see I, the characters in their natural environment, and I like that we get to see Jeffrey Tambor and the Garner family. It, it helps us realize what is at stake if Doug can't be found later on. If they had just started with them on the road to Vegas or arriving in Las Vegas, I don't think it would have had nearly as much emotional weight to it. It's nice, too, you get all the setup with Alan about how awkward he is. I mean, it's a cheap shot, but he, he wears, instead of regular underpants, it almost looks like a sumo wrestler thing, where it's just a, it's like a thong, basically, right? Where you see his ass cheeks hang out as he's changing his pants. It's a comedy butt. It, it's a comedy butt, and it's 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 well done. And I, I love, it. it's a small moment, but it sets off, uh, this movie is good about setup and payoff. It's a smartly, even though you, the dialogue feels loose, it, it's the, the script is structured like a mystery and it's done very smartly and they set up roles uh, to let you know what's happening. You get uh, Jeffrey Tambor as, as Sid, uh, Tracy Allen's father. They're going to take, you know, I forget the car they want to take originally, but Sid grants them the use of his, I'm not good with cars, but like a real nice expensive car well, it's, it's like a classic convertible isn't it uh yes i mercedes-benz that's what it is that's right it, it's a real ritzy car he's like you know you're gonna have this is your one time to go nuts i want you to do it in style because they're driving from california to vegas which is um i think it's like an all-day drive usually i, I, I haven't done it but I, uh, we, we did, my family took a, uh, one summer took a, a huge cross country road trip. We, we went from, uh, San Francisco to Vegas. Oh, I do okay. not remember how long that took, but I believe it was a while. From what I've heard, there's a big, long, boring stretch in the desert. Oh, oh yeah. I do remember that, but it's a beautiful desert. Right. Um, and before we talk about Vegas, I think we've talked about this a long time ago on the original sequel cast series where we covered um, National Lampoon Las Vegas vacation. When you mentioned, like, what do you think of Las Vegas in general? Well, it's it's been it's been years since I've been there, but I had I had a great time. I do I do like the idea that there's a centralized location for just general vice. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. I, and you know, I haven't I haven't been there recently. I do. I, I think we went there like right when Vegas was bringing in a lot of like different shows and was trying to be more of an all ages or families type tourist destination. They've kind of moved away from that. Yeah, which um, is, which is all well and good because you know it, it's it's nice to know that if you go there, there is something for everybody. But when it comes down to it, Vegas is is uh, an adult playground where you're supposed to make stupid decisions for fun, and they might they might as well take advantage of that. Yeah, it. I've been a few times. I really, it's a really short flight from where I live in Portland, Oregon. Um, I'd love to go again. I'm the kind of guy that likes hotels. Okay, like, and it might be because I don't like to clean. And maybe is why I like hotels. But I really was impressed by uh, New York, New York, which is an older casino on the modern Las Vegas Strip. I've never been to the original Las Vegas Strip, which is sort of run down from what I understand. But uh, New York, New York 
it's like a Disneyland version of New York. It's like cartoonishly terrible with like fake and real bagels on the streets. Like it's, but I, I love that about, I like that Disneyland Epcot Center kind of experience. Did you see their tiny replica of CBGBs you can eat in? Uh, no, I didn't go there. I, I went to the <laughs> British pub which, and had a English, full English breakfast, which actually was uh, pretty good. Oh, those are great. Yeah, with a blood sausage. Um, but we, when I was there, I stayed at the Paris, which I wasn't that impressed with. But uh, anyhow, yeah, no, I, I like Las Vegas. I, I always think of Las Vegas because uh, my sister out of college worked in London at an externship at Lloyd's of London. And all the people there, she asked if they'd been to the United States. And they said yes. And she said, well, where? And they go, oh, Las Vegas, because it's a place <laughs> that you can, uh, it's a popular tourist destination for foreigners. And if you kind of want to experience like a, a super packed version of America where you can do a lot of walking, you don't need a car. I mean, that's Las Vegas. It, it's you, you do more walking in Las Vegas than anywhere else. And I love that about it. Well, provided it's not too hot, although when we went there, there was a lot of places that had just these air misters to keep people cool, and that was a nice touch. Right. I also saw the Penn & Teller's show at the Rio. Uh, Excellent. I would easily do that again. Anyway, we're getting a little off topic, but not really, because this film takes place in Las Vegas. They stay at Caesars Palace. Classic, iconic uh, hotel. Although I'm I'm sure Caesars Palace paid them some money to be the location. Yeah, I seem to recall uh, when uh, Chevy Chase did the uh, National Lampoon Vegas Vacation movie, they didn't have, they didn't get the rights to use a lot of Las Vegas places like they wanted, right? It was sort of the the smaller casinos. Yeah. <laughs> but this one, you know, I mean, the opening credits, you you see, or there's like a, a big like shot of the Las Ve- of the the fountains going off at Caesar's Palace. Um, very iconic imagery. And, and Caesars, it's not one of the newer, hipper places, but it, um, it there's something about, like, the the opulent, mock, Greco-Roman look to things that just gives it a real flavor. Oh, no, something that happens, though, uh, once they get to Vegas, which I, I, I really like, there's a, uh, that, that great scene where they all, they all meet on the rooftop to have their little sort of, like, their their bachelor pep talk <laughs> moment and you know yeah, yeah. you know bradley cooper the talking about speech yeah you know yeah doug and, and phil talking about what friendship means to them and and you know they're all going to toast and i love and i love when zach galifianakis kind of butts in with his own toast and there's i love i love characters that think they are being profound when they're speaking utter nonsense <laughs> and alan yeah. is just so perfect when he gives his speech about being a lone wolf and a pack of one. <laughs> and he's only known most of these people for less than a day. <laughs> he's but talking about them is, as if is, he's known them for years. But I mean, it's a real smart performance because you feel, or at least I felt sympathy for the character and you felt sad for him. That's true. It's, it's, it brings him dangerously close to redemption, uh, and, and and yet there is something something tragic that it that it takes so little effort for him to to bond with somebody so deeply that he's moved mm-hmm. to tears mm-hmm. and gives that incoherent <laughs> speech. But then that's when things kick off because they they all take their they take their shot of whiskey. Then there's some cr- crazy uh, fast forward of the Vegas skylines with that that oh yeah Little John song which. That gets me pumped up, and I'm glad they used it. Then we cut to the next day with the hotel room trashed, uh, and Doug is missing. And 
they do the shorthand. If you ever want to imply pure chaos just happened, have a chicken walking around with no context, and that's what they do. Yeah, I don't think you see footage of them in a hot tub. That's another thing you can always show for a crazy night. But, um... Right, it's... It's it's very smart that the movie is like, even though it's a comedy, they sort of set it up as like a mystery. Because the room, completely trashed. You see just the shots of the, of the legs of, of a woman, and there was a body attached to it, I, I assume. Oh yeah, we, we learned who those legs belong to later. That's right. Um, so it's this mystery woman, you don't know what's happening. And uh, more importantly, and I, I think this is just a, genius, a stroke of genius, not good for Justin Bartha's career, really, but um, Doug... The, the groom is missing. They don't know where he is. Oh, and by the way, there is a tiger in the bathroom. And a baby. Like th- that's... And, and a baby, yes. A yeah. tiger, a baby. <laughs> it's something else, man. It's Yeah, and, the, and, and that's what leads to get things going. It's like a weird... I, I hate to use the term stoner, but it's like a stoner memento where they have to reconstruct the previous the previous 12 hours of events using only these disparate things that have been left in their apartment or in the uh, hotel room. Right. And it is fun because it's because you because once once you've established the mystery, then tracking all the clues to their source leads to all the movies entertaining set pieces, such as the Vegas Wedding Chapel, uh, the strip club, uh, Black Doug, uh, Leslie Chow, uh, Mike Tyson, who turns out to be the owner of the tiger. That's right. It, it's one of those things that you go from location to location as they piece the clues. It makes you feel like you're figuring out the mystery along with the characters and the, the plot the mystery is just stupid simple which where you don't want a complicated um you typically don't want a complicated plot in a comedy notwithstanding something like fletch where the character is a detective i mean that's different well do we, do we want to talk about that uh resolution to the mystery uh not quite yet but okay put cool. a pin in it because i do, I do have some thoughts about that sure um i mean i think of all the different sort of adventures they have and some of my fa- there's a lot of good physical comedy in this and one of my favorites is with rob riggle where they you know they're they are sort of have a coffee to sober up a bit uh they leave caesars and the keys they have on them are not to the um the mercedes-benz but it's to a police car <laughs> yeah. and they just kind of go with it you know stew uh, played by ed helms the, the sort of like nebbish, really nervous guy is freaking out the whole time. He can't shut up. He's super, super anxious and worried about what his wife will think. And, was, I mean, that's another thing. Like, right when they get to Las Vegas, they decide to spring for the most deluxe room possible. That's four grand a night. And it has high-definition TVs all on the wall when those are pretty rare. Um well, we know we know Stu is a doctor, so presumably they are all in pretty high-paying careers, except for Alan. So I suppose it's justified. I, Al- you know, yeah. Although well, Phil's I, a teacher, teachers don't make that much. May, well, may, maybe he's tenured at a university or has it's, a works be, at a sure, private school. Okay, fine. But yeah, well, I guess yeah. Maybe maybe it is just maybe it is just. Uh, Stu, maybe just Stu and Bertha have, uh, maybe they have all the cash. Although you have the, Alan must come from money because his 
Oh, dad's I mean, the, Garner, the Garners are wealthy. That, that's established. I mean, they have sure. a Mercedes, a classic Mercedes Benz in perfect working order. And, and you have the feeling, although they don't outright say this, Alan is probably one of those um, kids, you know, whether because of his uh, ADHD and, and just his ineptitude, he might never move out of his parents' house. And he probably has his own sort of credit card that his parents keep on filling up with money. Mm. Right. You, you have an idea that he can afford some stuff too, but not that, but no one in the movie is like poor. Like these, they're spending a lot of money in Vegas. They're having a good time, but they end up spending way more than they uh, planned on. Well, yeah, with the, the escapades. Yeah. Although that's one of the things that goes through here is that they've had to, they've all told, uh, they've, the cover story, the trip to Vegas is secret though. Their cover story is they're going to a wine tasting weekend, which I, if you're going to tell a lie, tell a plausible lie. Yeah. I like, I can't, I can't imagine that. Not only can I not imagine anyone doing that for a stag weekend, I can't imagine anyone believing somebody if they told them they would do that for a stag weekend. Yeah, it's a bit prosaic, isn't it? Um, and and they don't really get into the lie that much. That could have been a bit funnier. To, yeah, um, there's just some like some cover ups when when like and, uh, when Stu and Melissa have some phone calls, but that, that's pretty much the extent of it. Uh, and and yet it would have it would have been funny if they had a little running gag where like they kept doing things to to make the lie <laughs> more plausible, such as coming home with a weird bottle of wine that they could have only got at the tasting. Sure. Um... I, the thing with Rob Riggle, where they get, you know, arrested and basically instead of having to go to court the following Monday, which they can't do because they got to go back to the wedding, they uh, are basically electrocuted for the glee of children. Well, yeah, they agree to participate in like a scared straight sort of thing and to talk in front of some tr- some supposedly troubled kids about like, you know, the dangers of a life of crime. And it just it escalates so horribly that they all just get tased. And that it takes, <laughs> that Zach Galifianakis doesn't go down immediately is is a is a nice touch. Oh God, yeah, he's just spasming around like Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, he even sticks his hands out like Glenn Strange is the Frankenstein monster. It's a uh, it's real something special. Because it's a good physical bit of comedy. Rob Riggle, of course, was also in the Daily Show. Oh no, Boris Karloff was the original Frankenstein's monster. Well, yes, but it was Glenn Strange that popularized the sticking the hands out. Oh, okay, good point, routine. good point. So, but yes, they're both Frankenstein monsters, um, of course. Well, the real Frankenstein's monster was inside us all along. I mean, that's sort of true, but we're getting off the topic. <laughs> Although I will bring that up when we talk about what you're watching, because I did see a Frankenstein-related picture. Um, and, and of course, the Mike Tyson stuff is the other thing people remember about this film. Uh, yeah, and, and that was, and I remember that kind of like being a big deal because Mike Tyson had been out of the public eye uh, after after the whole Evander Holyfield uh, ear biting incident. Uh, I, th- I think the only thing he, that had been heard about him was just some, like when he tried to get a reality show about pigeon raising off the ground around this time. That's right, and the- it he was. Making his way back in the public eye, um, movie comedy sequel fans might recall Mike Tyson had a small bit part in Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles. Well, well, more than more than that, though, he had also been 
there had also there had also been a shadow over Mike Tyson because of uh, because of his his uh, his rape conviction in jail time, which I don't I don't want to bring the podcast down. Uh, but that was that was something that that was kind of discussed around this time, be, uh, because his cameo in the film was pretty heavily advertised. Right, he served. Uh, he got a six year sentence for rape and um, served three years and got released in ninety five. And uh, it, I think, was it while in his prison or right afterwards? He got the the face tattoo. Uh, no, I believe I believe it, it was it was afterwards. That I believe okay. was right before the Holyfield fight. Right, um, the the ear biting fight again, another famous incident. Ninety seven, yeah, right. That's when that happened. Um, yeah, and that's the other thing. Like it also it led to this persona that everybody just assumed that Tyson was going to be the craziest goddamn thing in this movie, but he wasn't. He's just this. He's just this quiet, muscly guy with a high pitched voice for the purposes of this film. It's a um, a restrained performance, and he they smartly know what Mike Tyson has to work with. And I think it's it's a good um, it's a good cameo. And and of all the people, and that's the other thing that I like is that if you, if someone finds a tiger in their bedroom, they got to return it to their owner. Everyone's just going to assume it's Siegfried and Roy. I like that they go with who you wouldn't expect, and yet it still makes sense. If you told me Mike Tyson owned a tiger, I would believe you. Right, it's that sort of opulent thing when he shows up. He's a bit threatening, but then he also likes, uh, oh, um, Phil Collins. Phil, you mean you mean uh, Bradley Cooper is Phil? Oh no, he likes Phil Collins' music. Yeah, yeah. the Phil Collins' music. Yes, in the air tonight, right? They, yeah, which is a weird, a weird affectation to have. It, it is, but um, Phil Collins had had good uh, solo hits, um, as well as his work in Genesis, of course. Oh yeah. As the, it's weird to see a drummer have a solo career, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's like him and Ringo and Dave Grohl, I think, are the only ones. Yeah, good, good point. It, it should be noted, you know, since the the Hanover, um, they did a, a few years after, around the same time, there was a documentary Tyson, directed by James Toback, and on Adult Swim, he's been doing. Um, Oh, the Mike Tyson like the, mysteries. The Mike Tyson mysteries, kind of like a Mike Tyson meets Scooby Doo takeoff. Which I've never. Have you ever seen that one? Uh, I have only seen one episode, and interestingly enough, it was last weekend. Was it any good? It was. It, it's it's almost it's almost stereotypically like early uh, early Cartoon Network it, or early Adult Swim. It, it feels mm. like a throwback to things like Harvey Birdman and uh, C Lab Twenty Twenty One, but in the best way. And yeah, Jim like Rash this... is great as the ghost of the uh, Marquis de Queensberry. <laughs> I really like the uh, sort of stripped-down character designs. Well, no, I mean, you you can't beat the classic Hanna-Barbera look. Yeah, it's like human proportions, but it's it's very... Um, almost look like character witness sketches. Like, it's sort of, you know, the clothes are a bit rumpled. There, there's a lot of character based on what they wear. And then the the, the, fa- the faces have just enough line work to indicate who the character is. No more. Yeah, no less. Um, <laughs> what about all the all the baby jokes in the movie? Right there, that's the babies up front and center on the poster. There was in the trailers a lot. Well, I can't I can't help but feeling I can't help but feeling afraid for the kid because I feel like these are the worst people to take care of a baby. 
but the only the only real the only joke with the baby I I, I even remember is when Zach Galifianakis does that uh, does that masturbation joke. Look, guys, he's jerking his little weenus, which is like <laughs> like on screen it's hilarious. But if anyone like if anyone actually did that in front of me, I would be horrified. And he repeats the joke like three times in a row, and it's funny each time. But luckily, they don't beat it to death. Phrase um, it. Yeah, phrasing, of course. Uh, Heather Graham as Jade, I think, is, is a real funny presence in the film. Part of what we learn is, uh, even though they can't remember what happened as they piece the clues together, they find out that Stu, uh, who was already married, got married to a stripper. <laughs> yeah, and he also lost a tooth. I mean, and end up finding out later that apparently during the night he made a bet that he couldn't re- safely remove one of his own teeth. <laughs> and he did, yeah. It's such a horrifying... It's a major tooth. Yeah, I mean, because he's a dentist, he says it's like the... What, the incisor or something? Yeah, it was one of his front incisors. I, like, they get they get technical with this dialogue, which I like. Yeah, it's a, a nice uh, nice bit of business. What else? What else? I mean, there's so much to talk about with this. Well, she, uh, well Heather Graham just gets so much, so much more to do than any of the other uh, actresses in the film. And she, there's a sweetness to the character, even though she's a stripper and, as she mentions, an escort. Um, well, I think I think what saves it is they don't they don't give her some horrible fucked up backstory. She like she she's sure of herself and the the decisions she's made they weren't like they they weren't forced upon her. She looked at available options and and went with the stripper escort route. Yeah, it would have been too much. I think had the character been dark and depraved and. Um, Certainly, the the sequels, in their own way, get much darker than this original film in the series. Oh God! And the other thing, the other thing I love is because because uh, it's we've, it's her legs that we see leaving the hotel room. But as I, as I recall, isn't isn't it revealed that the whole reason she left was because she was getting them breakfast? Yeah, she, was she just got them stuck in line. <laughs> and then by the time she came back, they had left. So yeah. had they just turned around. They would have saved a lot of trouble. Yeah, she would have explained everything. I love, I love that. I love that kind of comedy of errors angle. Yeah, it's 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 well done. It's funny. As they sort of uh, piece the things together, um, there's something you wanted to mention about the uh, the conclusion of the film or the wrap up of the mystery. Right, they're trying to find the guy the whole time. Doug. Yeah, they're trying to find Doug the whole time. White well, Doug. Yeah. Well, actually, before before we hit that, I do want to talk about my favorite interlude is the Ed Helms uh, playing the piano. Okay, very good. Yep. Yeah, because Ed Helms is a very talented musician. He can play the piano. He's he's a, a whiz on the banjo. But I love that in the middle of the movie, like pre- I guess presumably it's like Sherlock Holmes and the violin. He's doing this to clear his head and concentrate. But he just sits down on the piano and sings this silly short song about about finding Doug that has these great sweeping moments and crescendos and has like the best just fuck you ending. You know, and if he's been kidnapped by Crystal McTweakers, then we're shaded a lot, but do and he just <laughs> ends it in the most simple vaudeville way. Because he's doing it, I think, to kill time as they feed the tiger a steak with uh, some sleeping pills in it. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they feed this tiger, the tiger a, a, a steak with sleeping pills. Because we found out that uh, Zach Galifianakis had, quote-unquote, sleeping pills. And that the whiskey shots they took were were dosed with Rufinol that Zach Galifianakis has. And what may very well be the darkest joke in the film. 
It is, and it's... Uh, oh, not Rufinol, Ruhypnol. It's... Yes. The the date rape drug, date, date rape drug, as they say in the film several times. It is... Um, that's an interesting plot twist. And that, that they go to a hospital, you know, makes sense, and they, they pay off the doctor and try and get clues. Well, it helps, though, because it does, it does justify the sheer craziness, because like, you'll do some crazy things when you're drunk, but... The fact that they they in they, the fact that the people were not only drunk but but out of their minds on various psychotropic substances, that justifies the craziness. That makes the the, the craziest stuff plausible, such as the tiger. Right. But the actual ending. Okay, so when I when I first saw this movie. Uh, I had uh, very early on, like, I think uh, uh, this may have even been when everyone woke up in the hotel room the next day and everything's trashed. It just clicked in my head. Oh, there's only Doug's missing and there's only going to be two answers to where Doug is. Either Doug is in the hotel, possibly stuck on the roof, which is or, or which is what turned out actually happened. Or he had some sort of like he had some sort of moment early on in the bachelor party and decided he would rather be home with family and he took an early flight back while everybody else was getting drunk and high and he was going to turn out to be at the wedding the whole time because hmm. i feel like those are the only two endings the movie could possibly have although i am, overall i am i am happy with the fact that doug has just been stuck on the roof the whole night there, there's just something there's just something just delightfully tragic that that he was right right above their noses the whole time, and they've been a bit, they've just left him fucking around searching Vegas all day. And they even notice the uh, the mattress on you know the the cops are there among other reasons because there's the mattress. Yeah, the mattress that they fell in impaled one one of the statues on the the roof of Caesar's. And and that's the and that's the other thing because like because we know that. There's no windows broken in their hotel room. There's no windows open. So the mattress couldn't have come from their room. The only other place it could have come from was the was the roof. So really yeah. that one clue kind of tells you everything you need to know to find Doug. Hmm. That's right. It's um and you know, you it's good makeup too with the, all the sun damage on his skin. Oh yeah, he he looks wrecked. I don't. I don't know. I like. I don't know if you've ever gotten drunk and then woken up on a beach, but that is how you look. Could have had some more peeling skin for my. Well, uh, yeah, but I don't think game. we want to see Doug like looking truly grotesque, though. That might. That... He has to get to a wedding after all, and he has the hat. He has the. He's in the wheelchair. You know, they have to. Uh, that they're even the the little gag of. Um, them having a tuxedo van and they have to do a handoff of the tuxedos. Well, I love that. I love that. That's like a, a victory lap for the movie that they're, they're racing back for the wedding. And while doing that, they're interacting with other vehicles to get their, to, and, and other characters that they've met to get all set up for the wedding, rehydrated, recharged and ready to go. And at the wedding, the, uh, the music is, is played by the Dan band, which has, <laughs> played on the soundtrack to um, other Todd Phillips films, such as Old School and Starsky and Hutch. Well, I love that they're doing, like, lounge singer versions of, of uh, R&B songs. Like, right, really those raunchy R&B songs. Who haven't heard of the Dan Band, they're sort of a, a, a novelty group that does covers of pop songs, but they add a lot of swearing, and they, they don't quite go as swanky 
as um, Richard, Richard Cheese. Cheese. Mm. But it's not too far removed from that either. They do more rock, though, than lounge. Hmm. But yeah, that's a that's a, that's just a fun moment. It's fun to actually pay attention to the lyrics and kind of get the humor of what they're singing. But you know, the wedding the wedding goes off well. Everyone has a good time. And one thing that's established early on is that they have like a, a they have like a camera that they they were going to use to sort of document uh, their debauchery, which they do. Like I think they pull one or two clues from, but at the end they're like, well. Let's just delete this stuff. No, no, we should take one look before we delete it. And originally, this was on, I think it was on Late Night with Conan O'Brien that they talked about this. Originally, they were supposed to hold up the phone, look at the back, and everyone get a shocked expression and cut to credits. But they decided really? very late in the process, no, we really should show what they're looking at for maximum comedic effect. So throughout the credits, we see all the photos of their craziness and damned if those photos don't live up to the expectations set by all the fallout we see from their debauchery. It's it's very rare that that happens, but the photos we get really do compete with what you imagined. It's like, what a payoff. Like, had that stuff not been in the film, like, it, it just, it gives you that extra bump to keep you sticking around for some of the credits, and that it's humor through just still photographs that still tell a story. Oh yeah, and, and it's so rare. Like, we see Zach Galifianakis' penis. We get that right. m- moment where I love that where we get to see Ed Helms remove his own tooth with a pair of pliers, and he has that great bloody jack o' lantern smile <laughs> where he looks like he thinks he's the most triumphant man in the world. It, it's a satisfied moment. Had that, not, I didn't realize that was a last minute audition. Had that not been in the film, it would have. <laughs> um... Yeah, they they had to like get every they had to get the principal cast back together like over like uh like they had like a day to take all those photographs. Hmm. And it looked good though because they also look like photographs an amateur would take. They're not too good. They're they're not too good like they were taken by a professional photographer, which would destroy the illusion. And they're not too sloppy like a professional photographer trying to look like not a professional photographer. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if, for authenticity's sake, they didn't just hand the camera to a random person and said, here, take take a, take the shot. And yeah, considering this, I mean, you can tell this movie came out in 2009. Among other things, they had a camera that they took the pictures on. Right? Like, nowadays it'd be on someone's smartphone, probably. Oh, well, also, yeah, yeah. The, the phones in the movie are mainly, like, the Razer flip phone, which is a popular model. Well, they, they, were, they were still in, in heavy use at the time. Let me look. I don't even know where iPhones around in two thousand nine. If uh, I, be, I believe the, the at least the first generation was out by that. Yes, point. first generation. Wow, two thousand seven. But they were pretty unusual. I mean, you had to be AT and T only. I think at the originally to get them. Oh yeah. And uh, around the time this movie came out, it was um, you know around the time of the three GS model, so it was gaining in popularity. So it's just because when it was made, smartphones are not heavily in the film. I think we've we've done a good job talking about the Hanover here. Any last thing you want to talk about the movie? Oh gosh, I no, I think we've we've pretty well covered it. I mean, it it was a very entertaining film, and and I laughed consistently, which is it's good when there's a a comedy that does that. And I I I love that it's I love that it's not about the end of the world. I love that it's just about 
three people trying to find their friend. Uh, I've I've recently had a burnout on special effects driven comedies, so seeing one that isn't special effects driven that's just all about the characters and performance uh, really really made me happy. Yeah, even though we don't, um, there's not a whole lot of action in this movie. You get some good gags with the the car stunts. And uh, it, this movie's just really well-paced. It keeps the plot going. That it has sort of a mystery to it, I think, is a touch of genius. Um, it's a great, solid soundtrack. The score by Christoph Beck is um, nothing to write home about. Oh, there is a nice sort of, like, hook, da-da-da-da, sort of this mystery kind of thing that sounds a bit loungy that um, gives it uh, uh, keeps it moving. Yeah, just a really good comedy. Um, do you give it sequel yes or sequel no? I'm going to give this a sequel yes. I'm going to give this a sequel fuck yes. It's, um, <laughs> yeah, really good modern comedy. Um, it's not for kids, but not all comedy should be. It's uh, Thank This is a hard yeah. R. It, it earns its R rating. And um, I don't want to say this is a sweet movie, but to me it never felt crass. <coughs> Hello? Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Now, how, how, uh, oh. What do you mean by it never felt crass? Perhaps that's... You know, it, it doesn't feel like it's being... Like, every joke, I think, is earned. I mean, it, it, it does do gross-out stuff, yeah, but it, it feels... Um, oh, well, like it works on a level beyond shock value. Like, they're actually trying it, to that's find what I'm trying to say. humor yep. out of the situation. That's right. Okay, that I can totally see. So, I take that it is crass, but it's um, contextually it works well in the movie. It doesn't feel out of place. Cool. So, let's do a picture sequel. <clears throat> you mind if I start? Oh, no, go right ahead. I would make this movie, uh, if I was doing a sequel to this, I would make it an interquel. You know, it would be called The Hanover Night. And we only saw the still pictures of what happened that crazy night. But, of course, there's more than just that to what happened. And it, this would be, again, a hard R-rated movie. It would be darker than the original. And it would go into more detail of what happened that night. It would have a lot more, um, because of the success of the original, it would have a lot more cameos in it. So not just um, Wayne Newton and Carrot Top, as we saw in the picture montage at the end of the, oh, yeah. the first film. <laughs> which is a great touch. You would see um, Siegfried and Roy, the, the tiger, would come to fight Mike Tyson's tiger. That would be a sequence sort of a tiger boxing match. Nice. And you would have um, Alan would ride on the back of one of the tigers into battle. <laughs> fighting, I guess, Mike Tyson on top of his own tiger, and they'd fight. Um, but I have to have, ask, would, would there be a real story, or would it just be all these vignettes of, of what happened that night? Uh, that, that, that's a good question. Let me think about that. It It mainly would be vignettes but i think the actual story would be contrary to what uh alan claimed that he had the wrong drugs in his uh he got dealt wrong drugs by the dealer and it was meant to be ecstasy in the movie in the first movie they explained it was meant to be ecstasy but it was actually roofies instead it is um proven that actually no he was given the correct pills ecstasy they were drugged in another another matter that's sort of the wraparound story okay in which they get some sort of toxicology test from the doctor played by matt walsh he gives him a call and says hey you know i was looking over your results and it turns out 
you couldn't have possibly been roofied at this time because of the the levels of blood in your system and uh and by the way here's um your your camera you know accidentally was in video mode a lot of the night and so it's sort of you get a bit of a wraparound story with them sort of aghast looking at what's happening and um it would mainly be vignettes though not not a main story it would be darker it would sort of flush it out you have them go to old las vegas the old vegas strip and the new vegas strip it would be a lot more of the casinos featured and um probably a gag about um the mafia trying to cut in alan on a deal because he's so good at counting cards so so it would, it would be the lion king one and a half to the hangover is the lion king that's right it would be called the hangover night or the night before the hangover hangover the night before that's what i'll call it huh. what's your pitch of sequel Mine is going to be uh, uh, mine is going to be Hangover Amsterdam. So Ooh, okay. in this film, it's gonna we're gonna we're gonna bust out of the United States. It's gonna take place in Amsterdam, and the reason it takes place in Amsterdam uh, is that uh, Stu is in Amsterdam. All the characters are in Amsterdam for for different reasons. Uh, Stu is there for a uh, for an international dentals conference. Stu is in fact going to get married. Stu is actually engaged and is going uh, to marry Jade. She's uh, she's still uh, she's still in Vegas. But everyone else is uh, everyone else is in Europe for different reasons. Uh, and after the craziness of, of the events of the hangover, Stu kind of said, I really don't want a bachelor party. I don't want to go through all that again. But when everybody discovers that they're all near Amsterdam, uh, Phil, uh, Alan and Doug converge on Amsterdam to show Ed Helms a crazy, crazy night before he goes back to the United States. Uh, and in this one, of course, they'll try some Philosopher's Stones at one of Amsterdam's many delightful cafes, and that what will get that is what is going to get things going crazy. Uh, and this time, Stu is the one uh, who's going to go missing. But it turns out that Stu had a contingency plan, so Stu has left a, a trail of clues uh, and we find out that Stu has outright been kidnapped uh, by uh, by the mafia. It is, in fact, Leslie Chow coming back for revenge because he was mm. also in Amsterdam. Oh, and we'll find out that Leslie Chow was in Amsterdam because he wanted to see... Uh, he wanted to see uh, the Anne Frank house. He was there for historical reasons, but when he found out these these four <laughs> American guys who humiliated him the year before were there, he decided, why not? Get revenge, Let's get some yeah. revenge. Uh, and so it'll all end with a crazy comical showdown uh, in a warehouse that the triads use for smuggling uh, drugs out of Amsterdam. Uh, and it's going to go crazy, and uh, it'll, it'll, end, it'll end with them... It'll end with them. They steal Leslie's private plane and fly that back to America, and that's going to be how they arrive at the wedding. Wow, that's that's pretty good. I have to say, it um, it is surprising that they did not take um, Amsterdam as a setting for one of the sequels. There's so much possibility there, and you could and you could go all over Europe, right? And you know that that they picked Thailand, which. Um, is a beautiful location for Hanover 2, as we'll get into next week. I think it's a bit um, uninspired. So uh, I, I I do want to say one thing I'd like to add about the soundtrack to the film. I love the use of the T.I. song, Live Your Life, when they go into the hotel and see how kick-ass it is. 
their room is. And I love it, uh, not because of the song necessarily, because it uses a sample of Dragosti Dinte, which was uh, made famous by the Numa Numa internet meme, one of the very first internet memes to really blow up with video in it. Oh, that Maya Who? Yes! Yeah. It, uh, and when, yeah. when I heard that, I uh, couldn't yeah. tell if they were trying to leech off of the viral fame of the Numa Numa thing. Or that, if that this song was, was a number deeper. one hit, and Live Your Life was a, a top the Billboard 100 in the United States, T.I.'s third number one single, and it, it uses samples from that song. Um, now, whether they used the sample because they first heard it in the meme, I don't know, but that wouldn't surprise me. So, uh, let's see here. Yeah, um, very good. Uh Sounds cool. Let's move on to what you're watching. Thrasher, what have you been watching? Well, I, uh, I had a really good time uh, last week. My uh, my wife and I went to the Rift Tracks Live Summer Short Spectacular. Oh, okay. So is this off like industrial films from the 50s? Or? Uh, it, it, it was a mixture of industrial films uh, and public service uh, shorts. Oh, and promotional reels. Their their final their final riff was, uh, do you remember the infamous Car of the Future short? From MST3K. No, I don't think I've seen that one. What's it's one of the, it's one of their most infamous shorts. It's one of the shorts that they cut the least out of, where it was a an like a twenty minute long promotional musical, for that was made I believe for for General Motors or Oldsmobile. I, I, it was one of the big car companies from the fifties. Well, for they closed out the summer short spectacular. They found another promotion automotive promotional reel that was a musical from the same that was commissioned for the same auto manufacturer's trade show, starring the same woman. And that's what and that's how they ended the show. It was amazing. And this one, rather than being uh, about the future, this one was all fantasy themed. And there's this terrifying-looking wizard huh. guy who kept appearing and disappearing in it. That's got to be hard to riff over a musical number, though. There were enough lingering pauses. Well, that's the wonderful thing about it being a promotional reel. There are moments where the singing would stop just to show you a sexy car, and that those I gaps see. are plenty of time to throw in some jokes. But it was—I mean, it was really fun. Uh, they had it was you know hosted as always by Michael J. Nelson, uh, Bill Corbett, and. Uh, and uh, Kevin Murphy, but they had guest riffers. They had Bridget Nielsen, uh, or sorry, Brid- uh, Bridget Nelson, uh, Mary Jo Peel, uh, Frank Conniff, Trace Billu, uh, and Paul F. Tompkins all <laughs> joining them at various points, and then all coming out for the final, the final short. And um, let's see. So how um, how crowded was this show? Uh pretty pretty crowded uh our th- the theater the our, the theater where we see these at because we sadly we couldn't make it to tennessee for the actual theater uh to be in the actual theater so we, you know it's streaming to to digital movie theaters uh, around the country so we went to one in lexington and regrettably the theater that we went to if you're selecting seats they manage where the gaps are so your choices are really really limited so the mm. th- the theater we were in was just about just about full, and we ended up having to sit in the back because that was the only place where we could get two seats together where it didn't create a a gap that the theater was trying to reject. So um, you've been to these before. Was this one of the better ones? Oh yeah, this would this would have to be uh, have to be my my top three. Uh, the other two being the Christmas short spectacular and uh, Manos the Hands of Fate. 
Manos, the Hands of Fate, of course, is a, perhaps one of the most legendary um, things I've seen. You know, oh, Mystery yeah. Science Theaters, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, and hey, I mean, Mystery Science Theater is the only reason people know that movie today. But hey, we might be able to talk about that in the future because there is a sequel. Hmm. Now, we might regret doing that, but it is now an option. Very well. Very good. So, um, I want to talk about a, a TV show I've seen that was a revival of an old TV show. And for some reason, it stars a famous comedian in a lot of prosthetics. I'm talking about The Gone Show. And it's Oh, hosted, that's right! Yeah, it, it just I just noticed it on, on Hulu, which is where I caught it. And uh, it stars... It's hosted by Tommy Maitland, who was actually Mike Myers in a lot of prosthetics. That was not a very well-kept secret. Which, well, and, I mean, you can tell it's him, which... That is such a... Why did they do that? Why why did they invent a fake host for this show? I want to know the thought I, I process. I don't know. And the, the weird thing, too, is, like... I think he's supposed to be, like, British or Australian, but he sounds a lot like... It's almost like the Austin Powers voice, but with the nose and the prosthetic, he looks kind of like Robin Williams, which is creepy. You see, I and, happen to think that the prosthetics make him look more like Myers, but a Mike Myers from A Dark Future. The nose is so different, though. It's, yeah, I don't know. It's, um... Yeah, I don't know. You know, because the thing about, like, Chuck Chuck Barris, for, for all of his talents, Chuck Barris always seemed a little bit awkward in front of the camera when he hosted the gong show. And that only, and that only helped that show because the point of the show... It, it, it's the acts. I'm really worried that Mike Myers, particularly Mike Myers in a lot of makeup doing an outrageous character, is only going to overshadow the acts that they get on the show. You know, he... Um, he seems like... I mean, I bet for Mike Myers, the person doing this kind of stunt casting thing to host a, a remake of a show on network television, I mean, Mike Myers has been out of the limelight... Uh, partially because he's been married and decided to raise his kids, which is which is great. Nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that. But to to do this as sort of a, a light comeback is, is quite strange. Uh, I mean, the other main project he's working on is he's starring as Del Close in a biopic. Huh. You know who Del Close is? I've I've heard. Oh no, he was he was a, uh, an actor uh, back in the back in the old days. An actor in the old days, and he's he's well known for being a, a teacher of modern improv comedy. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The, he, the, he developed the, a long form improv and Herald structure. Right. He co-authored the um, the book Truth and Comedy, and he he worked with such notable students as uh, in Chicago as uh, Deanne Aykroyd, Chris Farley, uh, the Belushi's, yeah, Chris Farley, George Wendt, um, Bob Odenkirk, Amy Poehler, you know, even uh, George Wendt. Um, Amy Sedaris, uh, he died at, at 99, but, you know, only 64 years old, but he was tremendously influential to, um, to modern comedy. Even though 70s SNL is not modern, but, you know, that sort of birthed the, whatever. He, he's influential, and, Del, and Mike Myers was close with him, and he's playing, I think that'll be an interesting picture. But as far as him on The Gone Show as a host, I don't think it really works. I think what I do like is even though, you know, on YouTube, YouTube sort of made the Gone Show irrelevant because 
anybody can do something stupid and the world can see it for free, right? Yes, although I do prefer that stuff to be curated. I hate waiting through mm, shitty, mm-hmm. not entertaining internet videos to get to shitty, entertaining internet videos. I, I really like, I like to have a curator. And on the Gon Show, I think that's something they do well. They do find some stuff that's bizarre. One is a couple's act where they chew up bananas and spit it into each other's mouths. Hmm. Uh, one is a uh, an Asian couple that does a duet. You can't Gon an Asian. Um, the at least in the first episode, the uh, the host they have as celebrity judges. I, I assume it's rotating throughout the show. They have uh, speaking of the Hanover, they have Ken John. They have. Um, Oh, I, I, I'm drawing Will Arnett and Zach Galifianakis. And they are sort of cracking up and they have a good humor about, they knew what the Gone Show was and I think they react to it appropriately um, in mild disgust at at some of the, the bits. So I got to ask, um, so one of the strengths of the gong show is that even their worst acts, there was something strangely compelling about them. One of the things that I cannot stand about any modern talent show is that they inevitably put in some stinkers that they know are going to fail and it just drags the show down. I assume they're, they're looking for people to hate laugh at it, but it just wastes so much time. Are, are they still keeping compelling, terrible acts on the new Gong Show? Or are there any acts that are shitty for the sake of being shitty to make the other people look better? You know, even the one that I felt was the weakest um, presentation on there, there was something weirdly magnetic about it. And it was about uh-huh. uh, a man in his 60s in a karate outfit, and it plays disco music, and he's sort of dancing and fighting in slow mo as like a tai chi thing in slow motion at the same time like it's something it's not the same it's not going for the same thing as a bad uh american idol audition it's no william hun i'll put it that way although william hun had a certain je ne sais quoi i mean he had five albums from <laughs> you know blowing out on the uh, audition thing from american idol well, so i th- i think he knew who he was like you know, yeah. I, I think he, I think he's aware that he's not a good musician, but he's like, well, what the hell? This will be fun, and that one of my kind regrets, of worked his advantage. When I was in college, I, I start one of the, I went to a lot of colleges before getting my degree, but one of them I went to was Georgia State University, and um, I had the opportunity, I could have been one of those guys who waited all day to audition for the original season of American Idol. Hmm. And looking back, I wish I would have, because I think I'm that awful enough at singing. I could have been on TV, but I don't know. That's just me being um, hubris, I suppose. Oh well. Well, when when I think of all the, you know, actually, I almost, I almost auditioned for Who Wants to Be a Superhero. However, the, the persona yeah. I created, I became so attached to, I didn't want to lose creative control of it. I see. That was the Stan Lee hosted? Yes, the Stan Lee hosted reality show. And it's the only it's the only one that I liked because unlike other reality shows, it wasn't about watching terrible people be terrible to each other and keeping the most conflict-prone, terrible people on camera. It weeded out the terrible people. It was It was a reality show that celebrated the good in people. Hmm. I 
like um oh what's the show called da, 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 da. yeah i really enjoyed if we're talking about reality shows one i want to plug really quick is one from the late 90s early 2000s and it's called let me i'm just looking up the name because there's a few shows with very similar names the mole um, not not the mole it was the a plant? fitness related called uh, yeah celebrity fit club boot camp was uh-huh. the name of it and it had it was hosted by a guy that was a real uh i believe it was a marine um it could have been in the army I, I apologize i don't know that part too much no he has a, a marine corps drill instructor henry harvey walden the fourth and the thing i liked about it is it was through military style exercises like no no screwing around but it wasn't like they all had to live in a house in the meantime. Like, they all went back to their day lives. And so if they screwed up on the diet and stuff, that was on them what they did in their off hours. And huh. so some people did really poorly and some people did uh, really succeeded. I mean, famously, um, the actor that played Screech, Justin Diamond, was that right? Uh, yes, that was that, was that, that right, actor's Right, who played name. Screech and Saved by the Bell. He was so... Um, in your face and I guess wanting to pick a fight with the, the drill instructor host, he uh, got thrown off and then was invited back for another season. Cause of course he did well on the ratings. Um, and I think got like walked off the show a second time, but I, I just, it went on for like six or seven seasons, but I like that the fitness was more realistic stuff. It was less gimmicky. And, um, I, I just like that military boot camp setting. I have never uh, served in the military and at this age, I'm not going to, but I, I don't know. There's something about that boot camp setting that seems very comforting for me. Oh, very cool. So, um, let's see. Next week we're going to talk about The Hangover 2. Hangover Part 2, I'm sorry. Isn't that the full title? I I think you're right, yes. Yeah, in the (laughs) way of The Godfather. And this came out, which came out a mere two years after the original, which is awfully fast. And yet, I feel like it could have been a year after the original. It felt like a year, didn't it? Well, it, it seemed to come very, very quickly. But, but I feel like for for a comedy like that feels as loose as The Hangover did, I could totally see money being thrown at people to just film it over the weekend. So that we got even a two year gap suggests that at least some time and thought was taken. Although I have never seen any of the sequels, so I'm going to be going into this raw. Oh, fascinating. Okay, should um, <laughs> be noted this the budget for the sequels got blown out of proportion because by the time the second one came out, they all were movie stars, right? Yep. So they could get a big old paycheck. Um, so we're talking about Hanover Part 2 uh, next week on SequelCast 2. Um, anything you want to plug, Thrasher? Uh, yes, actually, by this time, uh, if you do like tabletop RPGs, by this time next week, uh, or I guess by the time this drops, um, 100 Oddities for an Enchanted Forest uh, should be out. That's my latest collaboration with author Clint Staples. Uh, I wrote uh, about half of the material in the book. I also provided all the illustrations. And it's a, a table of 100 random items, characters, monsters, and encounters, and we do mean random, that one might find in the deep woods or an enchanted forest. And it's just kind of a way to export our imagination uh, for other people's advantage at the tabletop. Cool. Um, I've been busy doing some um, writing gigs lately. So cool. um, 
there's some forthcoming stuff that I, I can't talk about yet, but I will say uh, keep your eyes peeled on Games Radar and uh, Hardcore Gaming 101. I have some stuff coming out for for those people. And I also got a um, sort of out of the blue through an acquaintance got a gig to doing a writing on a business blog about going to work on a piece about how to write uh, computer uh, tutorials. So. Mm. A bit different, but more related to my day job stuff, so that's, that's pretty neat. Um, yeah, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter at MATWBT. And you can follow me at Internet Mayor. For Sequelcast 2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying. Checks into your bank account and you up out of poverty. Your values is a disarray, prioritizing horribly. Unhappy with the riches cause you're pissed poor morally. Ignoring all prior advice and forewarning and we mighty full of ourselves all of a sudden, aren't we? SequelCast 2 is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. Find another great film and TV podcast at BattleshipPretension.com. The theme song to SequelCast 2 is written and performed by Mark with the Sea. Listen to his music at MarkWithTheSea.com. You can also listen to SequelCast 2 on the go at Stitcher. Head on over to Stitcher.com and search for SequelCast 2 and give it a listen. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension fleet.